Welcome to Positive Disintegration Podcast. This is episode 19, The Challenge of Levels. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to another episode of Positive Disintegration, a framework for becoming your authentic self. I'm your host, Emma Nicholson, and with me is co-host, Dr. Chris Wells. Hello, Chris. Hello, Emma. Nice to see you again. It's good to see you too. Um, oh. I'm excited about today's conversation because we're, we're getting into uh, levels again. That's right. I'm excited for this episode because I've had some feedback from listeners who want who have said that they don't love the way that we talk about the levels all the time and that they feel that there are more people at level five than Dabrowski thought or that is kind of part of the dogma or the other yeah, beliefs around the theory. And so tonight we have a guest who is going to explore this with us, the idea that maybe there are more people at higher levels of development than we give credit for. Excellent. I'm, I'm glad to get into the subject. I'm also glad that we're going to be able to address people's concerns at the same time. So good opportunity to multitask on that. So I met Steph in June 2017 when I was giving her and Michael Pihovsky a ride to UNASA West here in Colorado. It was the first time that I got to pick up Michael and give him a ride to camp. And I got to meet Steph that day too, which was great. Then I met her again at NAGC that fall in 2017. And it's been a pleasure to get to know you over these years, um, to get to know your work a little better. You participated with my study group this winter, which was exciting. And I'm really happy to have you here with us today to talk about your chapter in Living with Intensity, which is called What We May Be, What Dabrowski's Work Can Do for Gifted Adults. And we're going to talk about Delta five. So welcome, Steph. Thank you. Glad to be here. And so for our listeners, Steph Tolan was already speaking and writing about the needs of the gifted with an emphasis mostly on kids uh, when Michael connected her with Dabrowski's work. She immediately recognized the OEs and only later came to understand the developmental levels and effects of what Dabrowski called positive disintegration on the lives and experience of gifted individuals. So thanks for coming on, Steph, and thanks for sending us across your chapter. Well, I'm glad to be here, and um, we'll go from we'll go from here with that chapter and and my uh, growing awareness of the impact of the multi-level development or positive disintegration of adults. We don't see it as much in children. But since I began to focus with this chapter on adults, that's where it becomes really pretty important. In your chapter, you touched a little bit on how you first came across the theory that you read it at some point in the perhaps mid 80s. Um, and you read Michael's chapter from 1979 called Developmental Potential in New Voices in Counseling the Gifted. And I wonder what else you can tell us about discovering Dabrowski's theory and overexcitabilities at that time for our listeners who didn't read the chapter. I was particularly turned on by that chapter because I had felt, I guess my image of it was 
that there were a lot of things that had happened in my life, a lot of pieces of myself and a lot of issues that I had dealt with that were like dots scattered all over a page. And they didn't seem to be connected in any way. They were just this thing happened and that thing happened and these issues came about. And then I read his chapter and the overexcitabilities just put a pattern down on those dots and made an image of them and got them all in. And it was, it was just amazing to see the scatteredness of my life being given meaning by these overexcitabilities. It was the overexcitabilities are readily seen in children. And they had not been, let's say, loved and appreciated in my family. Um, some of them were far less appreciated than others. And uh, so it was just nice to see, A, that there were these things, psychomotor, sensual, intellectual, imaginational, emotional, these aspects of self, that they were there, they were um, noticeable in some people more than in others. And it just suddenly gave me a sense that what was driving my family nuts was not a failing on my part, not being somehow wrong in the world. And it was just, it was just great to see it there so clearly. And because I had a highly gifted son, it was also instantly clear to me that he had them as well. And um, so that really changed my whole view of things in a way that was quite surprising to me. I just reread your chapter last night in preparation for this. And it was, you know, it's always interesting to me when I go back and read something that I read years ago now at this point. And there's a lot to say about, you know, a couple of the things in this chapter. I mean, at this point, now that I'm working with gifted adults in my practice, I'm having the experience that you described where hardly a day or two goes by when I'm in between emails from people who are reaching out because they've seen a video I've done or they've read something that I've written and they want to know more about Dabrowski's theory and how it applies to them as gifted adults or you know, and they're trying to figure things out. And so I can only imagine what it's been like for you over the years, like how many people you've responded to and been in touch with who have looked to you for help. Well, for a long time, it was only parents with their kids. Um, and then, and I think that's what separates for me the OEs, which are immediately available to recognize in children from the developmental levels, because that doesn't happen in childhood. I mean, you, you don't, well, it can, but it takes a while for a human being to get out of childhood and then adolescence, which are very specific kinds of newness in the world for themselves and into their adult lives. And so the levels of development are a part of the whole lifespan. They're not just 
related to the children. And of course, so are the OEs. I mean, we don't lose the OEs as we grow up. We may learn how to deal with them better, or we may develop some of them more than others. But the developmental levels really mainly, at least in my version of things, apply to adults rather than children, which is why I didn't get into them very much in much of my time in the gifted world because I was dealing with parents and children. The child who got me into all this just turned 50 last week. So let's say I've been working in the world of adult human beings for a very long time too. You're right. And it's interesting because, you know, we had Tina Harlow come on and she talked about positive disintegration in children. And so we recognize that children do experience disintegration, but we don't think of it in the way that um, people often talk about the levels. We don't talk about children really in terms of, you know, advanced development or at higher levels. When they're going through disintegration, I would argue that, you know, it often looks more like unilevel disintegration. And although, of course, you know, some children are experiencing other dynamisms, but it's true that, you know, when we think about moving through developmental levels, we're usually talking about adults. And so that's what we're going to hit on today. So in an early episode, I don't remember which one it was at this point, I said that, you know, there are very few people at level five. And because that is kind of the established way that we talk about the theory, that there aren't many people at level five. Michael is the one who's done case study work. He's given us um, case studies of Peace Pilgrim and Eleanor Roosevelt and Eddie Hillsum. But we haven't heard a lot about adults who are at level five. One book that I read, um, Ordinary People as Saint uh, Monks and Mystics by Marcia Sinatar addresses this, you know, without using Dabrowskian language, she gives examples of people who are clearly at higher levels of development in, in the terms we would use with this theory. And these are just people who are working in service of humanity and not, they're not famous. We don't know about them, but they're doing their good work. And that's what you mentioned in this chapter, that this is something that you have recognized, you know, just based on your own experience of knowing people who are doing that in their lives. My first introduction to it was through Michael and through Peace Pilgrim and, and Eleanor Roosevelt and the others that he focused on. And, and of course, <laughs> I, had a, I had an Episcopal convent boarding school experience in high school. And so um, the issue of the issue of saints and people who did good works was always a part of our world, but there were few of them. You know, we, we were expected to be deeply appreciative of the few saints there were in the world. And when I first began to read Michael's materials on, on the levels of development, he seemed to be saying that too. But then... <laughs> A few weeks ago, when I mentioned to him that I felt there were a lot more of them than Dabrowski had suggested, you know, you can't just go with Jesus and Buddha and Yogananda and like 40 other people and say there is, that's the top level. And Michael said, oh, I've changed that completely. Oh, there's many more than I, 
there's, there's many more. There are many out there. And I was somewhat shocked. And then he pointed out that he had written an article for advanced development, <laughs> which actually was the first article in the issue that had an article of mine right directly after it. And though I had read mine when it came out, I had not yet read his. So I went back and read his. And sure enough, he does, he does give um, more credence to the idea that this is not just um, a wildly rare level of development. So, you know, it's, it's not as much of a disagreement as I used to think I had with him, but it's, it still seems to me that I have some arguments with Dabrowski. I mean, he's amazing. And I like so much of what he, what he stands for and what he says and what he's done in the world. That's all great. But I also have some problems with his theory. So one of them was how rare level fives were so that it becomes almost impossible to imagine you could ever get there. Um, you could maybe be, you could maybe get, well, in fact, I say in the chapter that I, I wrote that I was perfectly happy to be at level three. Thank you very much. I did not want to go to four and heaven forbid I go all the way up to five, which struck me as unreasonable and uh, not a way I wanted to live. So that's how I felt about it at first. I, I don't feel so much that way about it anymore. But I had another argument with both Michael and Dabrowski early on, and that is the level one, which Dabrowski insisted was your, yourself is the center of the universe. All of us at some point, probably in, at birth, feel like we're the center of the universe. But he said, neither empathy nor personal responsibility is available to the individual and they will never get beyond a level one. If they're a level one, they will be a level one throughout their entire lives. And that just made me crazy. And I said, I just, I cannot imagine a reality in which people could be born into a life utterly and absolutely unable to move beyond self-centeredness. It just did not seem to me to make sense. <laughs> it doesn't make sense. No, it, it doesn't. It, it seems if you want to believe in a caring force or God or beingness, to purposely create creatures who couldn't be anything other than selfish and nasty seemed not to make any sense. Because if, they, if you can't grow, what's the point? Then you have all these evil villains. And so, yes, like the kinds of movies you have where the villains are 100% villain and the good people are 100% heroes, um, that doesn't seem to me to be the way the world really works. Eventually, I asked Michael, and I'm sorry he's not here because then we could then we could have a conversation about this. And I, I hate to say what he might say, but I will say what he did say at the time when I asked him if Dabrowski, who was Catholic, believed in reincarnation. 
because you know that is not a part of the catholic religion nor is it really a part of christianity but it's a part of a, a vast aspect of spiritual traditions in the human species not only is it part of many religions there's also now a tremendous amount of actual evidence that there is such a thing as reincarnation we don't come here just once so it was okay with me to imagine that primary integration level one was for this whole life only if you had a chance to come back and so michael suggested that he thought maybe or i may be getting this wrong but it seems to me he said that at some point Dabrowski did come to some sort of belief in reincarnation. So I don't know about that, but it's the only way I can possibly deal with the idea that level one has no, has no better betterment during a lifetime. And now of course there's the University of Virginia where there's a tremendous amount of amazing research about reincarnation and clear evidence thereof. And plus, the other great thing about my life as a person who talks to families of profoundly gifted children is there are astonishing numbers of stories about children who remember previous lives. So that's one of those aspects of this whole discussion that didn't fit the way I was given it originally. Steph, do you think, um, you know, for the benefit particularly of our listeners, that you could take us through the levels um, and what they mean from your perspective because you've got that uh, little table <laughs> in your chapter. So can you take us through a quick walkthrough of what the levels are just so we're all familiar with them? Sure. Um, level one that I've been talking about is called primary integration and it's where a person sees the self as the center of the universe. They don't have empathy. They don't accept personal responsibility because it's not available to the individual. So that's level one, primary integration. Level two is unilevel disintegration. And this is moral relativism. Your, your morality at this level is influenced by your social group or the mainstream values. And if you have internal conflict, it's horizontal, sideways. It's, there's no mechanism for prioritizing one value over another. Um, if somebody says this is the way it is, and that seems to be what most people believe, you just accept that. And you haven't got a good way of sorting out whether you believe it or not, you just go along with the crowd, as it were. So it's, um, yeah, unilevel disintegration. Then level three is the one that I decided I was fine with being back when I first learned about this, was spontaneous multi-level disintegration. The development of a, of a hierarchical value system. So there, there are things that are can be considered better to believe in than other things. Internal conflict is vertical between the lower and the higher self or personality ideal. Like you have a sense of who you'd like to be and you might not quite 
be making it there, but you have that awareness that you could be uh, better than you are. And the individual sees self as is and also self as ought to be. And so you're aware that sometimes you goof up and you know you ought to be doing better and you try to do better as much as you can, but that isn't the driving force in your life really. And I figured when I first read it, that was pretty much where I was. I knew I didn't always live up to my, what I, what I wanted to be, but I tried a lot of the time. And so it seemed okay. Psychoneurosis develops, anxiety, depression, and existential despair. Those were things I encountered very definitely um, in my teenage years and my, in my early 20s. Big questions are asked. What's my purpose? Is there a God? And there's an inability to att attain certain answers, and that creates pain and intense struggles. So sometimes it was a good thing, and sometimes it was a very painful thing to be in multi-level disintegration because you become aware of where you fail and you're aware of where you'd rather be better. But it seemed okay for me to be there because I knew I wanted to be better and that felt like enough. Level four is organized multi-level disintegration. And that's development of high levels of responsibility, empathy, and self-awareness. The choices are more and more, more and more fit the personality ideal. Powerful movement in the direction of self-actualization. And your personal value system is in place and it supersedes cultural values. If there are people around you who, who don't agree with you, you come to the conclusion that your values are higher and you're going to hang on to those in spite of the fact that not everybody goes along with them. So that's level four. And then level five, that's the one that has your personality ideal is attained. Disintegration is transcended and the personal life is lived in service to humanity plus behavior matches universal values and beliefs. That's the one that I didn't think I could ever get to and wasn't sure I even wanted to try because I wanted to live in service to humanity because how could I do that? I knew the things that I wanted to do with my life, but I wasn't sure they were going to serve humanity. As I began to encounter people and think about these levels, the reason I began to find what I called stealth fives were that there were lots and lots and lots of people that I encountered who were doing things not for what it brought to them, not for monetary gain, not for popularity, not for people putting them in high office or whatever, but to actually help humanity. And of course we hear about those people and you know, there's the Dalai Lama and there's Desmond Tutu who, whom we've lost in the last year um, and people who we can readily recognize. 
But I'm not sure that even all those people really recognized themselves as that. I think probably they're aware of the fact that it's a constant need to pay attention to yourself and to how you're functioning in the world. And you know what you want to be and you do your best to be it. And mostly you succeed. I don't suppose anybody ever gets to the point where they never make a mistake or never feel that they've done something that was not the highest and best. But there are certainly people who do it most of the time. I agree that, you know, it's unrealistic to think that exemplars never make mistakes. But when you're living your values and when you are, for the most part, at that point, it's, it's different. And, you know, these people that are low, at level five, whether they're stealth or otherwise, you know, they are living their values in a way that, and they're also, you know, I'm, it's interesting, I meant to ask you before we actually started recording the episode tonight, but I, you know, what Michael had sent you. And so it's interesting to learn that it was his Lives of Positive Disintegration paper And in that paper, he puts forth an exemplar that, you know, is somebody who he discovered, you know, he is somebody who has achieved like inner peace. And the thing that I always wonder about is like, well, you know, has he dedicated his life to service? Like to my mind at level five, that's, that's what you're doing. You're working in service to humanity. You have transcended your desire to make money or like a materialism or caring what other people think. Well, here's where, here's where my own personal, I mean, let's face it. We, we have our own way of looking at the world and our own sense of ourselves and what we would like to be. Um, But I think the idea that a person lives only for others I think there are people who do that to an extent and certainly that don't put their own well-being first in every situation. But it seems to me that we expect too much of people who really care very much about humanity and really focus as much as they can on doing good in the world. Because what does that mean? I write books for kids. And when I first started doing it, I just wanted to get them published. And I thought it would be great to win awards. And I thought it would be terrific to have have money from doing it. It's not easy to have money from doing that, but that's what I thought would be good. And it would help the family. And, you know, I I should pull my weight in the family. Yet it seemed like not much of anything to do for the world. It was certainly not going to save humanity. It was going to, it was going to be um, a thing that I could get known for, and that might be very nice. But now that I'm old, I have a very different attitude about what I have done with my life. And it is not... I have not sacrificed my life for the benefit of humanity. But what I try to do in every single thing I write is to help whoever is reading it find their way in the world. 
with YA novels. I want kids to come to a novel like that and come out of it having gotten a better sense of who they are and who they might be. And I remember one time I wrote a book called Plague Year, and it was pretty intense. And I was at a school, a high school, doing a, a, an author visit. And the librarian said to me, there was a kid who came into my library last week, and he said, I have to read a book. I've never read it. He was a teenage boy. I've never read a book. I have to read a book. You have to give me a book that I'll be able to read and that I'll like. And she had just gotten play gear in and it was ready to go out to students. And so she said, well, try this. Now, this is a kid who had never read a book in his life. He came in the next morning with the book in his hand and she thought, oh no, he hated it. It's gonna, he's not gonna want to have, he's not gonna wanna read. He's gonna grump at me that I gave him the wrong book. And he said, I finished it. And she said, what? And he said, I read it last night. I finished it. I want another one just like that. And she said she was just stunned, as was I. Because what did that mean? I had literally, by writing a book I, that grew out of my own need to create and out of my own story-making gift, which I have, and I changed that kid's life with something I couldn't even imagine could happen. That began to give me a sense of we're not so sure about what it is we're doing in the world. We may know why we're doing it, but we don't know what its effect is going to be. And since then, I've had enough responses to my books. I certainly don't get acres of fan mail. And some of it is just my teacher made me read this book and I read it. And so now I'm having to write a, a letter to you. But what I get much more often than that is a letter from a kid who said, you've changed my life. You've reached in and found a piece of me that I didn't know I had. This book is really important to me. And in my book, Welcome to the Ark, I've had kids call me from all over the country saying, I didn't know there were kids like me. And some stories that are just so outlandish, I can hardly believe that they, that they happened. But I didn't set out to save the world. I set out to do what comes from inside me that I need to do because of who I am. And then I get this response. So I just think it's too simple to talk about ways you could be level four or level five and do things for the world, because sometimes who we are, if we're being the best of it that we can be, is what is needed in the world. love that example, actually, because it reminds me so much of what Melissa Bernstein talked with us about um, a few episodes ago or a couple, um, when she talked about like the impact of creativity on her life and how it's been a transformative experience for her and I think that really what you're saying you know really is along the same vein and so I I, I see what you're saying that makes a lot of sense to me I mean there are people who do a thing in their in their life because it'll make them money or just do a regular job and then there are people who choose to do with their lives something something more something that comes from inside themselves and I think there's an enormous room 
for growth over the extent of an adult life. My son just turned 50. I will turn 80 this year. And that's, that's a lot of decades. I'm not the same person I was when I was 30. I'm not the same person I was when I wrote my first novel. And so much has changed about why I do what I do and what I hope for from it. And even the working with gifted kids and families, you know, that's, that's not something that has made me scads of money. And I never thought it would, but I knew there were people who needed some information that I could give them. And so I wanted to write stuff that would be useful to them. And I never think of myself as being like a level five, but that guy that I wrote about in my chapter who started out as a a highly gifted kid who didn't do well in school and then ended up drinking and drugging and and being a, a really a, a really not a helpful person in the world and gradually by the time he was in his 60s his whole set of values had totally changed and he didn't have a lot of money and he didn't want a lot of money. He did a job where he could be in nature because nature was so important to him. And he cared about his kids and had gotten back in touch with them even after the disaster of his earlier life and divorce and separation from the kids. And as we talked in the airport and we shared our stories, he really felt to me like he was a person who was now living his life for a completely other way than when he was younger and much more about what he could do for the world and how he could enjoy the world. And he didn't care about money anymore. And he didn't care about being famous. He didn't care about anything except that he was living a good life, doing something he wanted to do, connecting with nature, helping other people connect with nature and basically loving life. So I call him a, a hidden, a stealth five, because he really had reached a point where he understood what his life was for and wanted to live it for what it was for, for helping other people and for enjoying nature and all of it. Not at all the kind of materialistic self involved things he had done with the earlier part of his life. Steph, I wanted to ask you, um, does that then give a sort of different spin, I guess, on level five insofar as it being more related to your authenticity and allowing that service to naturally flow from who you are rather than sort of conforming to an idea of what service to humanity is supposed to look like in the same thing as well, what is success supposed to look, look like? Um, Cause you've got a, a quote at the very end of your chapter, which is you are not accidental existence needs you without you. Something will be missing in existence and no one can replace it. So simply by virtue of being you, because you are unique whatever you produce in your authenticity may be of service, like you writing your novels and not realising that it may have the impact that it does, but it's just an expression of self. So do you think that's more, you know, we have this expectation that level five, that service to humanity should look like a thing, 
whereas perhaps it's more just uh, reaching into that place of authenticity? Well, here's, here's where we come to the complexity of one's spiritual beliefs because I was raised in a, in a fairly typical Protestant household. And then I went to this Episcopal boarding school and thought I might want to be a nun. That was not a good idea and realized it in plenty of time not to do that. But I have left behind the trappings of the religions that I encountered. Um, and the world is full of religions and it's full of spirituality. So that quote, I think, you know, here again, if we have many lives, and I, and I think we do, I think we learn from every single life we have, and we develop from every single life we have. And if there's one thing I have learned in this life, it is that sometimes the most devastating things that happen to us bring with them the most learning, the most growth, the most change, or not. Some people have terrible things happen in their lives and they give up. Some people commit suicide. Some people, and I've certainly in my own life thought of that often enough. When something gets really, really, really bad, I say, well, you know, what's the point of going on? But I think overcoming those things and finding where one can survive the really bad things, I think is hugely important. And I think people can do that. And I think for me, a level five is much more connected, not in what other people might think of you or what you do, but in how you cope with the worst things that can happen to you. You know, you look around right now in the world as it is, and those of us who are empaths just mostly have to protect ourselves from it because we can't watch it. We can't take in all that is happening right now. And the only way I can handle that is to be aware that when terrible things happen to you and you survive them, you can't help but grow and change and develop a different way of looking at life. So I, for me, the levels are, are interesting and useful. And yet there are ways in which I think they don't, they don't really get what I think is the central aspect of being human. And that is finding the best way to be that in your own self. There's one sentence that really struck me in your chapter. And you said, there are indeed universal values of love and compassion but there are as many ways to live those values as there are individual humans. And I really thought that that was lovely. And I agree with you. I mean, I think that we have a really limited, I mean, even if we take these five levels that Dabrowski outlined and think about them, I mean, we have a really limited understanding of what they mean because we haven't explored them well at all. And I would argue that goes for all five of them, that we just have our little glimpse of what they mean and, you know, Michael has talked about them as universes and types of development and that within each of these five types of development, there are whole universes within. And I think that that's a much more realistic way of looking at it than to say that we have a, a really clear understanding of what they mean. I mean, we do, of course, have Dabrowski's understanding, but like the woman in your chapter, Sarah says, I mean, 
even though he was a visionary for his time, well, we know a lot now that he didn't have the benefit of knowing when he was alive. One of my problems with much of our society is that people do not understand the incredible diversity of humanity. My least favorite thing about school is its whole basic structure, which is the theory that six-year-olds all, all are pretty much alike and they all need the same things and so on. I, I think we do not understand the incredible complexity of our species and the differences. It's, it's as though there are some rules that people set down and people are supposed to behave this way or that way, or these people are going to do those kinds of things. And I think we have it really, we don't understand that each single consciousness is part of the whole, but it's also its own, absolutely own separate thing. I agree that, I mean, I, I keep feel like I keep saying I agree, but I do. I mean, I think that there is like an enormous human diversity and that we don't understand it well. But I'm so glad that we're having this conversation today because we haven't talked much about the levels and we haven't um, pushed back on them at all. And so I'm grateful for you to, to join us and, and have this discussion because I think it's really important. I get a lot of feedback from people at this point and it's not always positive. I mean, recently I got a, an email from somebody who really took issue with the levels and the stratified nature of it and said it's just repulsive to this person that, you know, to think of like a hierarchy of levels where some people are perceived as, you know, higher than others. And I mean, it's really obvious to me, like I come from a social work background and yeah, I mean, I I can see how if I had come to this theory at, you know, a different time in my life, I probably would have been really turned off by the levels. But I try to, I mean, I think that I have my own kind of perception of it that I am not even ready yet to talk about publicly and put forth any kind of, you know, different way of looking at it. But I think that ultimately, that is what we need to do, that it, it doesn't make sense to think of, you know, some people as better or higher than others. It's just, it's not the way to be. Well, here's a, th here's a thing I will tell you about being a fiction writer. When I wrote when I wrote um, Welcome to the Ark and Flight of the Raven, which have a great, there's a, <laughs> there's a major villain in Flight of the Raven. And I remember somebody once said to me, which character do you like better? Elijah, the boy who is found and saved by a terrorist group um, or, the, or the terrorist who's, who's running this group? You know, which, which character do you like better? And I said, well, here's the thing about writing. The villain creates the hero. The hero could not be a hero without a villain to operate as a circular relationship with. If you had no villain, you'd have no story. If you have no conflict, you have no story. If you have no problem, you have no story. And all of us would like things to be easier than they are sometimes. And all of us would like to have only nice people in the world, but that's not, there's no way that you can have just one kind of person. So in my stories, there must be a conflict and the conflict may be a human being. It may be a really 
a, a human being who's doing a terrible thing. Now, mind you, my editor also says you don't make very good villains because you always have to understand them. Well, I can't help that. I do have to understand them. I do have to understand why they do what they do. I can't say that I know real life villains and why they do what they do. I just know that in my stories, I do have to have some sort of understanding of where that villain is coming from and why that villain is being who he is or she is. And, you know, without that, you don't have a story. Well, our whole existence is story. You don't get to have it all one way or all the other way. So, of course, there are various levels. And, of course, there are various people who everybody can say is a hero and somebody else who says, you know, yeah, but there's also some there's also some stuff they do that's not so great. So who's who's always perfect and who's always evil? Hard question. And I I just heard um, Neil Donald Walsh say something that he told the interviewer the interviewers viewers were going to hate. He said Hitler went to heaven. <laughs> well. I wouldn't necessarily say that, but I get the point that there is contrast in this world and contrast is what makes it happen. When you we were talking about the, the fact that, you know, there's a gray scale within humanity um, and being a fiction person, you might appreciate this, but immediately made me think of, Sirius Black talking to Harry Potter and saying we've all got light and dark inside of us. It's what we choose to act on that is important. Um, and that makes me think that when we're talking about, you know, people who are level fives, Steph, you said before that, you know, who's to say that they don't make mistakes? They don't put a, a foot backwards. And Chris, you and I have talked about before you can be across many levels at, at once with your behaviour and whatever dynamisms you're displaying. So I'd like to get both of your takes on this. You know, is it possible when we talk about stealth level fives that there could be people who have one foot in that space because they are trying to express their authenticity, they are trying to act on their will to help humanity and service humanity, but they still make mistakes. They still go backwards to places of disintegration because life's an ever-changing, evolving thing. And maybe they even go back to, you know, less savoury habits from the lower levels because we're all human and we all mess up sometimes. Well, that, that makes sense to me. I also know that there comes a time when you get old enough when you say, all right, I need to be the best person I can be. And that's all I need to do. I, I don't need to answer to anyone else except that center in myself that does not want to hurt anyone. And um, this last few years in the United States, it's been really hard for me to, uh, to maintain my sense that things are going to work out okay <laughs> somehow because it doesn't feel much like it right now. It feels like the dark has an upper hand in a way that I haven't seen before in my life. But then I've had a relatively, a relatively uh, safe life. 
there are people in the world who've known how dark it is always. Well, what both of you said, you know, is reminding me of a couple of things. I feel like I keep referencing other episodes during this one, which is interesting because this doesn't happen to me every time we talk with somebody. But I'm thinking about Eric's episode because Eric Windhorst said that, you know, sometimes he feels like he gets glimpses of level five. And I think that that is legitimate and that, you know, especially for people who have mystical experiences or peak experiences, that you can have um, like a glimpse of yourself or of that higher level before you're solidly there. And, you know, there's my study group last month read a paper from Lori Nixon about um, the function of mystical experiences and person, uh, personality development. And it's interesting because, you know, that's one thing, like mystical experiences give you this, this spiritual experience that can allow you to experience your personality ideal before you actually are there in your development. And so I think that, you know, you used the word complexity a little while ago, Steph, and that's, that's what we're dealing with when we're trying to talk about, you know, these experiences of consciousness or development. And it's really tricky to try and capture it well and, and accurately, but I, it's fun just to even attempt it, at least from my perspective. Does that then come down to how we're talking about the levels insofar as, you know, rather than saying you are level this, maybe you're behaving at at present. So when you wake up today, are you being your best level five self or are you behaving like a low vibe arsehole? Um, and recognising that we all have the full gamut in front of us, but it comes down to the choice of how we're behaving at that given moment. Well, I can say this, that right now, the energies that are bathing the earth are so intense, so overwhelmingly intense, that I think even, even the most positive and I would say morally ex moral exemplars are having a bit having a bit of a struggle with what's going on how they can keep how they can maintain um a sense of balance in the world you know i mean when when you devote your life to doing something for other people and then you realize that it's made such a tiny difference there's so much awful going that no matter how much you try to be of service or help others, it, it feels like emptying the ocean with a thimble. And that can be hard. That can be hard for everybody. Um, I don't think there's anybody that doesn't at some point, even when they're at their best, say, it's not enough. It's, it's not enough. Even within my lifetime, it's it just feels like right now we're going through an especially difficult time. And it, you know, I wonder sometimes, you know, having, I mean, my son just turned 16 this week and I'm like, whoa, what kind of a, what's the world going to look like when he's my age? It feels scary to even wonder sometimes. Then you have to be sensible enough to say there have been dark times in the world before. And, um, I mean, I just I just read a book called A Hobbit, A Wardrobe, and A Great War. 
and it's a it's a book about Tolkien and C.S. Lewis and their experiences in the First World War and their writing of those books. And you know, when you see what human beings have had to go through in their lives, and then they do something like like these two men wrote these these amazing pieces of literature that have had huge effects on people. And yet they're all about violence. They're all about war because that was what they lived through and put out these astonishing stories from their experience. So, you know, yeah, I've got an 18 year old grandson and a 14 year old grandson and I am not gonna be here when they are the adults dealing with the world. And I can only say that we're still here, we humans. And um, that is not necessarily a foregone conclusion. So in your chapter, you talked about Peace Pilgrim and us all being cells in the body of humanity. And I mean, I just think that like, as we're wrapping up this episode, if you and Emma don't mind, I would really love to read this whole quote from Peace Pilgrim about being self, um, the fact that we're all cells in the body of humanity, because I just feel like this, this paragraph from her just sums up so beautifully to my mind, what it means to be at, at level five in the theory, you know, to have this perspective of working for the whole, we are all cells in the body of humanity. We are not separate from our fellow humans. The whole thing is a totality. It's only from that higher viewpoint that you can know what it is to love your neighbor as yourself. From that higher viewpoint, there becomes just one realistic way to work, and that is for the good of the whole. As long as you work for your selfish little self, you're just one cell against all those other cells, and you're way out of harmony. But as soon as you begin working for the good of the whole, you find yourself in harmony with all of your fellow human beings. You see it's the easy, harmonious way to live. And I just feel like this is the essence of, of what it means to be, you know, at a higher level development in this theory. And it just, you know, I just wanted to read it because I want the listeners to kind of get a sense of, of what she was talking about and, and to live your values in that way is kind of an incredible thing. Well, she also did say that it got easier and easier as she, as she developed um, and that the, the ups and downs evened out. And I, you know, that's, uh, that was part of her message as well. That's right. Yeah, she did say that. It's, you know, and it, I'm going to share links in the show notes to her work because you can, you know, download uh, her book and steps to in their little, the smaller book steps to inner peace for free from the friends of peace pilgrim online. So I'll include them for listeners if they want to check it out. When we're thinking about our place in the world, you know, and how we can serve and not to sort of despair about the state of how things are, um, is based on, Steph, something you touched on is that, you know, we've always had troubles in the past um, and we probably will continue to have dark times. And I love the fact that you referenced uh, Lewis and Tolkien because when you think about storytelling through the ages, and this is, you know, something that Joseph Campbell would, brought, would have brought up, is that, you know, those heroes' journeys 
those, those lessons that we get of light and dark and, you know, the choices that the hero makes through their journey and surviving through struggle is something that we've been telling in stories since you know the dawn of time, since before we put them in writing. So if you look at old myths or even when you look at Shakespeare or if you look at Tolkien, you're seeing the same sorts of themes and the same sorts of struggles and it kind of gives me you know, a little bit of hope and a little bit of connection in the fact that, you know, humanity's been going on this journey for a long time where, you know, we've encountered struggle, we make choices to overcome it. Um, and I think that's a hopeful thing moving into the future to know that, you know, we're not alone. We never have been alone in that aspect. Well, I would agree with that. Steph, thank you so much for for being on the podcast and talking with us tonight. This has been really wonderful and interesting and different than anything else we've done yet. So that's exciting. Well, I hope it's I hope it goes over well. I'm sure it will. But thank you. And thank you, Emma, for for hosting and being here and for your technical expertise. Thank you to Steph for being our guest and, you know, helping us broach this subject. And thanks to you. Chris, for being on the podcast. Always appreciate you. And thank you to our listeners. We always appreciate you being with us as well for these conversations. And if you're listening to us on Apple or Spotify, please don't forget to hit those stars and give us a rating. If you have any questions, feedback or topics that you'd like us to cover, and clearly you have been in touch with us, so by now you may know how. But if you don't, you can email us at positivedisintegration.pod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter or Instagram. Until next time, keep walking that path to your authentic self.